The ego itself is really a shadow to the soul. The ego allows us to be so selfish that we are focused on our own purpose from a negative point of view rather than the soul's purpose, which is global. The ego is self-centered. The ego is only aware or concerned with its own existence, whereas the soul is connecting to the whole, the greater whole, the planet. Today's episode is sponsored by Men of Movement, which is now expanding from the retreat offering. The next one will be November 10th through the 12th in Mount Shasta, California. And the teachings of Men of Movement are now also carried through and distilled into my upcoming new virtual coaching program called The Path to Inspired Action. So whether it's an in-person retreat or you wanna work with a six to 10 week container of 12 exclusive men, a part of this tight experience, go ahead and click one of the links in the show notes and you'll be taken to one of those two special offers. Welcome to The Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. Today, we're joined by Warren Williams, who is one of the more senior faculty members at the Czech Institute. Warren brings such a deep well of wisdom in the realm of energy healing, life coaching, physical training and conditioning. He's been a martial artist for most of his life, has multiple black belts, and I believe he's got like over 100 undefeated victories in bare knuckle boxing. But today's focus of the episode is all around the change process. How can we improve? embrace change? How can we understand the impact of our childhood programming on change, self-sabotage, why we need a clear vision for the future, the place and role of identity in the change process, and why vitality is so important. So without further ado, let's get right into this show with Warren Williams. You brought up one thing that I think is so relevant to every single person in the world, whether you've been involved in self-development for years or you're brand new into it, for example. And it's this topic of change and people's difficulty with or challenges with the change process. So I'm curious, first and foremost, why that question or why do you feel it's so important to dive into right now? Yeah, I mean, as you said, the world right now is in this state of change. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the reason why, you know, when we spoke about this yesterday, um, I brought it up is because the world is facing this massive, um, what one of my coaches calls choice point. And I love that phrase. And we're at this choice point. And obviously this choice point is a causation, which is causing people to reflect and to look at their lives. So whether it's people that were working at home, they were, you know, during covid they had this opportunity to work from home and they realized they actually prefer this than the office because obviously a lot of people adapt to their environments, whether good or bad. It's like if someone drinks alcohol the first time, they don't like it. They keep drinking it. They'll adapt to it. So humans oftentimes adapt to things that are quite bad for them. And so with this reflection that people had during COVID, a lot of people realized they wanted to change their lives and get into this whole point of change the realizations that were created by people didn't facilitate change, it only created the awareness of change. And so one of the reasons why, or should I say, whenever we are faced with change, we can do one of two things. We either change and grow, or we go further into denial. And in order for us to continue to perpetuate the living standard that we're tolerating that isn't beneficial for us, we have to create an internal dialogue to justify why we should not change. Hmm. And that's why we go further in denial. We have to go further into denial to strengthen the reasoning to not change. Otherwise, you would just change. And so that's a massive choice point that most people are faced with. 
knowing that through reflection, certain things aren't working in their lives and things should change. And then justifying to themselves why they shouldn't change because change takes effort, it takes conditioning, it takes awareness, it takes aligned action. And because most people are in these habit loops, which we'll get into a bit later when we talk about the nervous system and how the body is wired with regards to stress. So because most people are in this habit loop of just, you know, this all, all the stuff that we know, most people are living unconsciously which means they are just doing things without thinking. That itself creates this habit loop and therefore prevents people from creating the effort because change takes effort. And most people are in such a conditioned path of least resistance, they don't actually want to change. I totally hear you on that. And you use specific words, that internal dialogue, as being something that plays a key role in the resistance and also the propensity to change in a positive way. What's been your experience and your understanding around where does that, where slash when does that dialogue start and how does it get formed? Uh, Because as you mentioned, it's so much rooted in the unconscious. And so can you backtrack a little bit on when does this internal dialogue start forming? Um, Yeah. When we grow up, when we are a child, we are, how, how should I put this? We are, you know, we know we're this open vessel where our ego, and I know you know this, our ego doesn't start to form until we're about three years old. And typically the ego starts to form when you learn to say no, because now you realize you have a choice in, in, in a specific way you can say no. And so as soon as you say no, you realize there's a separation between you and your parents. You don't have to actually do everything they say, even though you know there's going to be a challenge there, but you can say no. And so the ego starts to form. And for those listening who aren't familiar with what the ego really is, I mean, obviously a lot of people have heard the word ego, but the ego itself is really a shadow to the soul. The ego allows us to be so selfish that we are focused on our own purpose from a negative point of view rather than the soul's purpose, which is global. The ego is self-centered. The ego is only aware or concerned with its own existence, whereas the soul is connecting to the whole, the greater whole, the planet. And so a child is connected to everyone, as you know. You know, There is no racism. There is no sexism. There is no materialism in a child's mind. Everything is equal. But the child starts to learn through association and beliefs and programming. And so they individualize these concepts into themselves. And that's the ego because the ego is all about self. So the ego starts to form at three years old. But what's also interesting about this is as a child is growing and it has no filtration pathway yet, it accepts everything as its truth. Mm. And everything as its truth is what formalizes its belief system. So that's, first of all, that's just the belief. The belief is created through the fact that the child is absorbing everything as its truth because it has no filtration pathway. So now the child forms its own viewpoint because the ego started to form. It realizes it can say no. It realizes it has its own choices. And those choices are predominantly self-centered, self-preservation, all about its own existence. So now this child around three or four years old, starts to go to school. And as a child starts to go to school, this is the part where trauma comes in and um, change starts to come in. So when a child is going to school, a child does not know that its parents will come back. You know, every time a child goes to school, it starts to cry. Because the child doesn't realize the parents are coming back. Their child only knows that they've been left. So the child experiences what we call micro trauma. And I know you know about this. And, you know, micro trauma itself is accumulative. Every single time we have an argument with someone, we think we're going to be left by our parents or we're hungry. All of these create micro traumas in the body. And so my point with this is micro traumas accumulate in the body. And whenever micro traumas accumulate in the body, we create a resistance to change because of the pain. Now, these micro traumas start to formalize and they create a resistance to change because what they're doing is they alter our nervous system. Every single time we experience some form of fear, 
it creates tension in our nervous system. It crystallizes our nervous system. And so our nervous system, it starts to resist anything that is new information to protect itself from injury. It formalizes what's called a pain body. And this pain body is where we, we block our sensation of feeling and thinking. And so we create this pain body. Now, this pain body is where we experience specific levels of stress and they accumulate in our body to the point where we can no longer connect directly with our soul. So we start to create layers and layers of pain. And the more we are experiencing micro trauma, it blocks our ability to connect to the soul. Hmm. And so the more that happens, the more layers are formed, the more resistant we get to creating change. Because these pains that we experience, these micro traumas that we experience, what they do is they rewire our autonomic nervous system. And so what's happening, which is really interesting, is that nobody's reacting necessarily to circumstances. Those circumstances are correct. We know the HPA axis is correct, the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal cortex. But what's happening is when we have the HPA axis, what it really looks like is we see an event and we internally we react to the event and then we internalize the, the event. The internalization of any event, such as a microtrauma, it rewires our nervous system. It affects the ability for us to be in what we call the alpha brainwave state. Now, the alpha brainwave state is the state of our body in absolute serenity, peace, and calm. Mm. So if we are in absolute serenity, peace, and calm, we have the ability to interpret reason and logic and change from it. But most people are slaves to the internal reactions of their nervous system. The positioning of the nervous system determines how you react to anything in life. And so because most people are experiencing stress, their nervous system is actually in what we call the beta or the gamma, which are higher brainwave states, which is the state you experience when you're working hard or when you're stressed out or when you're performing like an elite level athlete, when they try to break a world record, they go into the gamma brainwave state, which is high productivity. So most people, because they are not in a calm state, because their nervous system isn't settled, they cannot make any form of change because they are stuck in fight or flight. Mm. And as we know with the, with the, the brain, the left brain, the right brain, you cannot change if you are in the left brain. In the left brain, you are stuck. You are only reacting to survival, such as hunting or gathering. When you're in that fight or flight state, you are doing whatever you can do to survive. So go into something that our buddy Paul Check says, if you're running from a lion, it's the wrong time to throw in a cartwheel. And what yeah, and what that and you can see it in your mind. I was like, yeah, I can see myself running. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, yeah. yeah, so you wouldn't do something creative. And in order for you to be able to do something creative, change is creativity. Mm. In order for you to do something creative, you have to be in the right. So you've heard of people that they try to figure out a solution to something and they're stuck. No matter how hard they try to start, that's because their mind is reacting to the state of their body and their body is in fight or flight, which is the left brain. So they can't problem solve. You can only problem solve when your autonomic nervous system is in the alpha brainwave state, very low, calm state of serenity. And because most people are wired constantly, they are always in fight or flight, which is the left brain, which is the beta brainwave state or the gamma brainwave state, so they don't change. So in summary, and even though that was quite long, in summary, what I'm really saying is because we experience trauma from a younger period of time, our body becomes used to operating in the beta brainwave state or a stressful state. And so our autonomic nervous system is in this stressful point. And because of that, we get used to being in the left brain. And because of that, we are unable to change because we are, we are a slave to our autonomic nervous system's programming, the autonomic state that we're in. And so the goal <clears throat> when it comes to changing isn't necessarily to get good advice. That's one of the things you need. You need to get this good advice. 
But what helps you change is not just the good advice, it's the ability for the nervous system to be in the alpha brainwave state. Because once you're in the alpha brainwave state, then change is, is um, conceivable and change is possible simply because you're in that state of allowance. With that, that's very helpful and insightful. And the first picture that came up, and this is something I've been curious around for a long time, and I'm really interested to hear your perspective. If, for example, you had, let's just say, two brothers or two siblings who grew up in similar environments, and obviously each person's nervous system is going to be unique to themselves and those micro traumas that they've experienced are going to be unique to the siblings, but in a very similar environment with two siblings who have maybe experienced similar types of situations, what contributes to, for example, one sibling thriving and one not thriving in the face of change or difficulty? And that's a, uh, an example because the real question is, is like with people who have had similar upbringings or similar environments, what causes someone to excel in the face of challenge, discomfort, uh, hard situations? And then someone, when they're met with that exact same challenge or something similar, they get deflated. And they're unable to perform or unable to to move forward in a positive way. Mm. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> great question. You know, one of the things that um, you know, as we, we were talking about, that makes it hard for, as you said, two different people in the same family is their programming, but also their software. And so, you know, obviously, the software is their beliefs, their values. And one of the things I always talk about with regards to your question is that. Um, you know, our programming, the conditional belief systems that we have are created through three things. Um, your religious programming, your social programming, and parental programming. And so each one of those three contributes to how you perceive the world and how you internalize information and, you know, how you are as a personality, as well as the autonomic nervous system being the regulator of all of those three. So if if we look at just the first scenario, which is the, the parents, two children in the same house will typically have the same philosophies and values instilled upon them by their parents. But the differences are to societal programming and the religious programming. Those two could be slightly different and therefore the programming overall becomes different between the two people. And then... And on top of that, their soul contracts, which are completely different. And then add on top of that, their archetypes, which obviously tie into their soul contract. And so for those who are listening, who are, may not have heard of archetypes, and I know you have, you know, the archetypes represent, I always say, different aspects of your psyche. And so we know that the psyche is everything that you are that cannot be weighed or measured. And so this is all about mind. So if you two brothers have completely different soul contracts and the soul contract is what you're supposed to fulfill in the world and you have different archetypes, which you will, those archetypes represent different aspects of belief and programming that came from your soul mission. And those are the ways that you're going to use your insights to fulfill your soul contract. So those would be uniquely different, same way how everybody has different fingerprints, even twins. And so because of that, the program they receive will be interpreted through different lenses. And those different lenses are the different archetypes and then different contracts that they will both have. No two people have the same contract. We may have the same mission, but the contract is how we execute that mission. Mm. And that is uniquely different from different people. And so that will kind of explain differences with the family members. Uh, that's super interesting. And the question that comes up is with this topic of soul contracts and those archetypes, do you believe or do you feel it's something that is chosen or something that we come in with and is kind of um, maybe just say chosen for us or some combination of those? Like, How does that soul contract and that archetype for the direction of our life and how we bring these things to life, how is that decided or how does that come about? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, most humans, when you tell them that if someone was born with cancer, they chose it, they think 
no, that's that's not right. <laughs> and a lot of it is because we have this limited lens of what we see as truth, because obviously we have this bias. If you're giving an example, I, I remember one of my friends was um, watching the film Avatar, you know, the first one. And, you know, he's Christian. And so from his point of view, the avatars were Christians. And I, he was saying it, and I, in my mind, I was like, we're the Christians in this film. <laughs> but from his point of view, they were Christian. And um, so, you know, we, when, whenever we teach information, it's always from that person's perspective as to what they accept as true. And I just prefaced that to say, Yes, we chose every experience. And if we didn't choose an experience, if it was an accident, that means it's out of the control of what you call God. And this is for people that have this belief system that think God is in control of everything. So I challenge that by saying, if God is in control of everything and God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, that means everything has to happen by, not accident, by, by, by specific parameters or been chosen. And so that means you cannot choose something by accident. You cannot fall into a specific life by accident because if it was by accident, it is no longer in the realm of law. And God or the most higher source creates those laws. So laws can only be bent, they can't be broken, which is a famous um, statement. So with all of that, what I'm saying is because nothing happens by accident, there are no accidents. Everything we experience in life is our choosing. So yes, we chose to experience death or cancer or even rape, and that sounds horrible to say, but we still, we chose all of these experiences. And you can tell when people choose an experience because when they are not fulfilling their life, they feel empty, which means they chose something else. You could have the richest man in the world and in the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, when he talks about these interviews he had with these millionaires and billionaires and found that most of them were unfulfilled. They were successful, but unfulfilled, which means they, there's a path they didn't complete. And that tells you there was something they chose that they didn't complete. So life isn't about success. It's about completing a contract that you chose. And you can tell that because you're unfulfilled, even though you're successful. So how, you know, it's like, you've got to say, ask yourself, how can someone have acquired almost everything you can think of from a material point of view, from a financial point of view, from a contribution point of view, but be empty inside? The emptiness can only be there because there is something that they have not completed, which means they had to have chosen it to have it not been completed because they've done everything from their point of view. So yes, we, we, we choose everything. And what we choose before we get here is our soul contract. And so I always say, in order for us to get back to source, God, Allah, Jehovah, whatever name you know you, you relate to, you have to complete all the tasks in the 3D reality. So I always say as a joke, if you were if you came into this life as a nun, chances are the next life you come back, you're a porn star. <laughs> because you have to fill it, fulfill everything. <laughs> And so that's the thing. You have to fulfill everything. So if you were rich this lifetime, you're going to have to be poor in another lifetime. Because if you haven't experienced everything in a three-dimensional reality, there will be something that you desire to come back to taste. You may say, well, if I was rich in one lifetime, why would I want to be poor? Because it's the opposite polarity. And because we are on, in this diametric um, duality universe. There is always opposition. We have to experience the opposition. You can't know the light before the dark or the dark before the light, the good before the bad. You have to experience everything. It's called yin and yang. It's not called yin. It's not called yang. It's yin and yang. It's duality. So this is duality. And so we have to experience everything. And you know, like our buddy Paul Check will say, you know, if you, if when you die, you desire a pizza, you'll have to come back and eat one. You know, you, you'll come back in another life to, to, to meet, to eat one. We have to burn out every desire in the 3D to be able to move on to another stage of evolution, spiritually, energetically. And so, yes, we choose to experience specific things. How can the child be born with cancer? Unless the child shows it. And some people will say, well, why did a child um, pick cancer as an example, to be born with cancer? And oftentimes that child is highly, highly evolved as in the soul of the child, sorry, 
is highly evolved and chose to come here for a limited period of time to teach its parents vital lessons so that they, in their next lifetime or in this, could evolve. And so the child comes with cancer, knowing it's a short lifetime to teach a lesson. And those parents needed the lesson to either celebrate life or to put pay things aside and to unify or to connect. And that parent might now become someone who sets up a charity that's going to help the global awakening. In some way, it's going to help raise consciousness on the planet. You know, a child that might have been killed by the police or something. Um, and, you know, we've seen stuff like this where the parents then set up a charity that helps other children. And then maybe that was their calling in this lifetime. I want to come here and awaken this person to help 10,000 people. You know, but that's beyond the normal human way of looking at things. But from a soul point of view, we look at the perspective of what we can affect on the planet before we get here and we choose a path. And it could be you're going to come here to be poor so that you can teach people around you to help them help you. And that helps them. And that could be a choice. But it's beyond what we see in, in our day-to-day living. It's, it's at a soul level. The biggest thing that comes up was, as you were sharing, that was just the humbleness, like a return back to humbleness that we, you know, we may, especially when we're so engaged in our life, like these stories or this, this perspectives that we have, it literally feels like it's right smacked up right in front of our face. Almost like we've merged with these perspectives, these beliefs. And it can be really hard, especially when so many of us and so many people are just trying to put food on the table or are just so engaged in a survival and their nervous system, their sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive. It becomes very hard to unmerge from that programming, unmerge from the way that we've perceived the world and actually see potentially a bigger picture. And, and oftentimes, especially the harder these things, the, the greater the pain, it's... Um, especially when we're in it, it can be harder and harder to actually see the meaning, the purpose, or what this could represent. And we often, if we do see it, most often in my experience, we don't see it till years later when we can have perspective or we're Mm -hmm. in a different phase of life. Or like you were saying, we have that advice or someone can reflect back to us or our nervous system's calm. Because when we're in it, it can be really, really tough to separate and have a more... 10,000 foot vision of what's happening. Yeah. And just on that, um, is what I'm reminded of a saying that encapsulates what you said, which is the greater the challenges you face in life is the level of mastery you have come here to attain. And so you see that a lot, you know, and just to add to that, you know, I always say to people, your breakthrough is beyond your pain. We have to go through this pain to get to the breakthrough. All the successful people in the world that we've seen had to go through some pain, which means they have to be willing to look at themselves and look at the parts of themselves that don't work. And as you said to your point, in the Western world, we're so busy with activities and stuff and things to do and distractions that we don't get a chance to really look under the surface to see what needs to change to allow us to upgrade because at this point, when we talk about change, what we're really talking about is upgrading and no longer having these um, low levels of tolerance. Because what happens is we keep making allowances and those allowances stop us from moving to our highest version because we start to tolerate. You know, we don't get what we want, we get what we tolerate in life. And so it's about upgrading our tolerance levels. What are you willing to tolerate? Whatever you're willing to tolerate is your life. And that's what you'll see. And it's a mirror. Everything that's inside of you is what you tolerated inside of you, which is why it's reflected outside of you. That's why it's called the mirror effect. If you look in a mirror, it only reflects to you your truth. So it ties into another saying, whatever you eat in private, you wear in public. It's a mirror. What would you say, Warren, with this idea connected to, I want to flush out a little bit the idea um, and the pattern of self-sabotage and how that relates to potentially choosing it, not choosing it. How does it serve us? How might it not serve us? Can you flush out this concept of the change process and these patterns of self-sabotage that so many of us, uh, all of us, I would imagine if you're human, you've got some patterns that where we sabotage. Can you flush that out for me a little bit? Yeah, so first thing with regards to sabotage is to understand 
that sabotage isn't manifest from us. It's always happening through us. So when we talk about sabotage, we create this massive ownership with it because we think we've created it. And because we think we've created it, we think the problem is us. And so because of that, it's harder to change something that we think is our own. But once you create a separation and realize that sabotage is simply a pattern in your field, then you're able to start creating change because you separate yourself from the pattern as opposed to it's me, I can't change. Because that's what happens with most people. They don't think that they can change because they think it's them. It's an identity problem. And the thing is, you identify yourself with the things that you do. And because you identify yourself with those things, because you keep doing them, you think you can't change. That's an identity problem. So when it comes to sabotage, the first thing, to, again, to just to reiterate is that sabotage patterns are only in our field. And I'm going to talk about the field for a second. The field is information. When I say the field, I mean the information field around us. Thoughts, feelings, emotions are not in us. So our soul is not in our body. Our body is in our soul. Hmm. You know, when people talk about the aura, the energy field, it's outside of us. It's not inside of us. So the soul expresses its energy and then we see it as this bio field that we call an aura. That means the body is inside the soul, not the other way around. And so that means that's the information field. So when someone can see lights and colors, and all children do, um, you know, every single time you see children painting, um, you know, really young children painting adults, they'll have a rainbow around them or some lights or sometimes a baby, you know, you have a young baby, she'll notice. Sometimes they look at someone new and they look above their head and then they may smile because they're looking at some sort of energy and that's how they identify that person's safe. Um, and then, wow. you know, examples of people saying, I saw red, that's energy. You know, people are seeing red, that's the frequency, that's the information field. And so with that, sabotage, exists in this auric field it's the information field and the information field is only reflection of our inner programming and so our inner programming our beliefs our thoughts you know all of them are expressed in this information field so that's just the first thing it's just to quick you know let people listeners know that sabotage is in the field it's not you so now when it comes to sabotage and why we actually generate sabotage why sabotage actually manifests Sabotage always manifests when we are right at the tipping point of success in some way. It doesn't have to be financial. It could be marital. It could be exercise. It could be abundance. But sabotage, and I'm going to tell you why, and this is really interesting. But So sabotage manifests when we are at the point of upgrading or changing in some positive way. The reason why sabotage happens when we are at the point of a breakthrough is because the unconscious mind is protecting us from the unknown. So, if, to give you an example, if you were making $10,000 a month and you just couldn't break through, and then you just unlocked this understanding of how to make $25,000. Your life will be different. The way you live, because you have more money, and you know people say this all the time, when they get money, more money, more problems, because there's more responsibility. So your life absolutely changes. Imagine jumping from 10 to 25 or 50K a month. Your life is completely different. The person you are is completely different. Um, and so because of that, that's the unknown. And so the unconscious mind actually doesn't know who you will become with this newfound success, notoriety, or whatever. And so because of that, it creates these sabotage patterns in your field to actually stop you from getting to that point because it doesn't know who you will become at that point. It's a, it's a protective mechanism. Now, this is reason why we need, and this is basically, it's, it's one of the reasons why we need to focus on visioning. It's one of the reasons why we need to have a vision in our lives. Because once you have a vision in your life, you're actually able to program your unconscious mind with what you will accomplish before you accomplish it. It's the reason why we have vision in ceremonies. And you hear about this in the Native Americans, so you have the vision and 
be a visionary and going on these um, vision quests and all this sort of stuff is to program the awareness before the actualization so that you are always projecting the future in the present moment before it happens so that you can step into in knowing. So it's important to be able to see the vision and then the vision beyond the vision. And we always project our future so that we have a path to walk towards. This is how the ancients always did things. That's why you hear about prophets and visionaries and sages, and they always prophesize because it's within our DNA to have this ability to see. And even when you hear religious texts, when they say he saw or um, saw with his one eye or um, to see things, this sight and seeing and visioning is the ability for us to see things before they happen. So we have a vision for where we're growing. And that was always something that we taught, which is why spirituality really should be a part of our life. It's not just about having a third eye open to see auras. It's about having a third eye open to be able to see our future. And so when we can do that, the unconscious mind now feels safe in the vision because it knows what you will be like when you're at 50K because you've created the vision for it. And when I say create the vision for it, what I mean is you're working towards 50K a month. You have this intention to generate 50K. You start creating constructs in the 3D. And what I mean by that is you start doing launching, you know, you start having these different business strategies, you hire a business coach, you get a marketer and all that sort of stuff. And so you start to optimize your life in a really structured way in the 3D. The 3D is what you can do tangibly. Marketing, branding, sales, all that sort of stuff. So you do the structure, so you're setting up all the infrastructure to allow yourself to manifest 50K a month. But then you have to do the visioning. You have to see what your life is like with that new infrastructure. And that's the part that most people don't do. So once you've set out your business plan and you've got this infrastructure, what we're supposed to do to allow our nervous system to feel safe mm. is to then sit with it and say, okay, what does my look like? Sorry, what does my life look like at 50K? And you create a vision. You see yourself, whether it's in a new house or you see your new team, you see the new way that you dress. Um, the new energy that you have, the posture that you have, and you vision those things clearly so that your unconscious mind can see what your life is like and feel safe knowing that that's how you will be. And once you do that, that is what we call creating the 5D energetic support for the 3D structure. So as I was taught by one of my coaches, you create the structure, sorry, you create the energetics and then all the vision and then create the structure for the vision and when you do that properly you no longer sabotage because your unconscious mind feels safe in knowing what the vision is that you're birthing that you're working into structurally and in the 3d reality warren how does that differ or fit into the concept of a dream i was just on a call uh yesterday with uh with a guy who's uh, done a bunch of check stuff and um he was just expressing his challenge around the how I heard it, I don't know if this was exactly what he was intending on saying, but this idea or concept of a dream feeling overwhelming. And so how does either this the dream differ from the vision? How is it similar? And what advice could you give in addition to what you shared in someone really creating the vision or the dream for their life? Yeah, I mean, the dream, oftentimes most people's dreams are not, not grounded in um, opening the energetic container. So what that basically means is Sometimes the dream can feel, um, uh, to your word, like just too big for the person. They can get stressed out by thinking yeah. about their dream. The reason why that happens is because the unconscious mind knows that the body doesn't have the container to hold it. So if you know you've got a dream to hold um, wealth, a certain amount of wealth, and to have um, a certain amount of people on your team and to affect a thousand people or a million people, if your energetic container hasn't expanded to hold that vision, it will feel frightening to the nervous system. Because as you know, your body reacts not just to what's actually happening, but what you perceive as happening. So studies have shown you can have as much stress watching a horror film as if you were actually in a horror film. Your body doesn't differentiate because it's all perception. So if somebody has a dream and they are, their energetic container cannot hold the vision for the dream, 
it creates stress in the unconscious mind. So with that, what we need to do is support the dream by raising the vitality of the person. And so raising the vitality means all the stuff we know about the four doctors, eating clean, sleeping, and you know, all that sort of stuff, doing your meditation and Tai Chi. And the more vitality you have, the energetic body can hold more, whether it's hold more wealth, more vitality, more challenges, um, the burden of responsibility, you know, as they say, um, heavy is the head that wears the crown. So you have to become expansive to hold the next layer of unlock within your life. Otherwise, it will create stress. And that's why dreaming alone isn't enough. Or some people call it dream weaving. I appreciate that you shared that so much because in the in the world of self-development and embodiment work, which actually is, I think, really powerful and really needed where we incorporate the body. And by and large, though, what I've seen is you know, our ability to hold this vision, one of the things that wants to happen is our body physically, our mind body wants to collapse, especially when we're meeting that edge. Yes. And the focus on raising, I haven't in this realm, outside of the Czech realm, like I hadn't, in all the things that I've read and been studying, like everyone still forgets about that, the vitality piece. And it's like, if someone's not sleeping, if someone's not breathing, if someone's not drinking water, I mean, you'd have to have an incredibly powerful vision. It's not to say that people don't do create massive changes, but as you know, it's like, well, even those people that do create these massive positive, at what cost and what what would happen if they did actually sleep or they did actually respect the integrity of the body, uh, which holds the mind, like it's all integrated. And so that's one of the biggest things that as we raise our capacity as human beings and are more vital, we can hold more. And, and that single thing in the realm of self-development, I've just seen it actually be one of the things that's not only neglected, but just in my viewpoint, there's so much of a focus on the mind that there's a forgetting of the body, either through embodiment practices or doing what it needs to actually set the body up to hold this capacity moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I actually want to add something to that. I Please. say this a lot to my... To my clients. Right. So um, when you are in intention and you're intentional about everything, what's happening is you're only working on the field. You're only working on the energetics of the field. To your point, it has to be embodied. And the word embody, when you break it down, is in the body, embody, in the body. And if it's not in the body, and because you operate in a three-dimensional world, it cannot manifest because you haven't held the intention in your field in the physical body. So it has to be embodied, which means you're holding it at a certain level in 3D structure because the 3D physical body is the densest form. And this is really interesting to your point. The 3D physical body is the densest point of manifestation, the densest because it's the physical body. And so, you know, as we know, people say this, but they don't really think about this word muscle tone. They say your muscle tone, but they just think about how hard the muscles are. They don't realize, well, you know, tone is a frequency, right? Mm. So it's muscle tone, it's the frequency of the muscles. And so if you're creating this lavish idea of what's going to manifest in your intentional field, but your physical body, the muscle tone cannot hold that frequency, you're going to have to work incredibly hard to maintain that, which is why we see people coming out with burnout, 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 overwhelm. Because it's not just about how hard you can push, it's whether or not the body can hold the manifestation. And as you said, that's the part that is being lost. Create the intention, create the intention. Yeah, but it's only in your field. And what happens is, and this is really interesting as well to your point, the amount of energy it takes to hold that level of intention without it merging in the body is, cons con is constant. It would be like, you create the massive intention, the amount of energy of the idea and the visualization of the idea. And then your body, because it can't hold it, it's like pouring a cup with holes in it. And so it means tomorrow you'd have to gear up the same amount of mental energy to create the manifestation again because it's not being held in your body. When the easier way to do it is every single time you up-level your mind and your vibration, you up-level your body. And if they move in, co in concert, you don't need to hold it. You already are it. 
you are naturally vibrating. You are a manifestation tool because you've worked on your body and your body now is holding the vibration that you've created because you've moved into a new frequency band. And the frequency bands are different vibrational states that you move through as your lens opens. And the opening of the lens is the awareness, but the awareness has to be held in the physical body, which is why Paul talks about these four dogs. You've got to be, as he would say, fit to think. And it's the same thing. You've got to be fit to hold the vibration of the manifestation. I love that analogy of the cup with the holes. And the, what came up for me was we hear this word motivation a lot. Motivation towards the pursuit of goals, like feeling motivated. I'm really curious to hear your perspective on that. Because at least personally for me, motivation feels to me as something like external. Like I'm looking for someone to motivate me. And that's usually not, like not really been the case most of my life. Like I've got an intrinsic level of inspiration. I feel more connected to that. But I'm curious, where does motivation fit in? What do you think? Uh, how does it fit into this topic? Yeah, I mean, you know, especially as you said, in the self-development world, um, a lot of these teachers, they talk about this drive and go and it's very, very young and motivation. Um, if it's not generated internally, if you don't have this internal calling, this natural nudge, this soul, we call it this soul urge and soul desire, then you're being fueled by adrenaline and adrenaline has a finite amount of energy. Um, and so motivation itself is, as you said, typically external, like you see something outside of you and you're driven to create that. You see someone who's successful and it motivates you. As you said, it's normally external. That person's made money, I want to make money. And so you're looking for something outside of yourself because you're not on, you're not on purpose as in you're not on your purpose. But when you do your inner work, your soul will connect you as to what you are inspired to co-create in this world. And once you do that, you are being driven by soul and soul is inexhaustible. You don't need desire if you connect to soul because soul is the desire that creates the change so long as you are on your soul path. So it's not pushing from the outside, it's connecting from the inside. And on that as well, just relating back to this whole thing about muscles and tension and embodiment, you can't be in expansion and contraction at the same time. Mm. And so most people, when they are trying to manifest and to co-create and to create wealth in the world, they're doing it from this scarcity point of view. I want to make money because I don't want to be poor. And what that does is it creates a collapsing of the wave energy because, um, I always say to people, imagine you were trying to drink water, but whilst you were drinking it, you flexed your neck, you contracted your abdominal wall, and you flexed your biceps. Everything was contracted. You wouldn't get the water in your body as easily. You'd get it in, but not as easily. And now imagine you sat in a good position. You were absolutely relaxed. Your stomach was relaxed. Your mind was relaxed, and you drank the water. You'd get it in more, more easily. That's expansion. And that's the thing is, all the things that we're trying to co-create in the world, we have to do it from an expansive point of view, from, not from fear, because fear collapses and contracts and compresses. And so whenever we are looking for external, that's a collapsing point of view because we're doing it from the fear point of view. I don't want this to happen, so I'm going to make sure I keep up with these guys. Um, but when we're solid, we are open and um, we're expansive. And that's the way we should co-create in the world, through, through expansion, not contraction. Wow. Are there anything else that comes up as major blocking factors to the change process? I know we've talked about a lot, but I'm curious, is there anything that jumps out at you as something that we didn't at least touch on uh, as a major hindrance to engaging in change? Yeah. Um, yeah, so identity. You know, identity is um, another big block when it comes to change. And so identity is, is really how you, how you see yourself. Mm. And so... You know, most people are certain that they will repeat specific patterns over and over again because they witness themselves doing it every single day, that habit loop. And so that is their identity. So even though they want to change, their identity is someone that doesn't change. And so because of that, because they attach these actions to themselves, even though I said earlier they're not, they're just patterns in your field, they create the identity that they are these things. And so because they create this identity, because they are absolutely sure 
they will repeat it because the past has shown them that they will repeat it. They do because it's familiar. And that's another reason why they don't change. They are familiar with the sense of failure and that is what they identify. And so that prevents them from changing. So obviously with that piece, what you do again is realize that you are perfect, but not finished. Mm. Once you are, you realize you are perfect, but not yet finished. You no longer denigrate yourself because every single time you have a negative thought, what happens is you compound that process. And what that basically means and looks like is you feel bad, but then you feel bad that you feel bad. And so you're compounding the energy. So it actually doubles or triples itself. So it makes it even harder to change. So it's like, if you feel bad and you eat ice cream, don't feel bad that you eat ice cream, just eat the ice cream. <laughs> you're making it worse for yourself. So just say, you know what, I'm going, to feel, I'm going to eat this ice cream. It's not good for me, but I'm going to enjoy it. At least you're half in the energy. But that's not what people do because of the identity piece. And they're used to compounding this frequency of contraction. And that contraction keeps their body in this state of um, inability to change because they are in the beta brainwave state, the fight or flight state, and their mind reacts to feel. And that's the, you know, the key thing that I'll kind of end on with this bit is that you know, your mind is interpreting how you feel. And how it, interpret, it reacts to how you feel doesn't react to how you think reacts to how you feel it's one of the reasons why there are crimes of passion mm. and then people regret regret is how they think what they did was how they feel oh my gosh i can't believe i did that why that's the thinking process nobody's reacting to that they're reacting to the feeling process and so because we are reacting to the feeling the most important thing we can do with the change process as we said at the start is balance the autonomic nervous system and sit in the alpha brainwave state and the way we sit in the alpha brainwave state is through all the stuff that we know meditation tai chi qigong breath work journal work grounding going in nature me time because all of these things allow us to regulate our nervous system so that we feel safe and if feeling safe is the normal vibrational state of the body the mind interprets safety. When the mind interprets safety, it allows us to connect with the right brain. And when it allows us to connect to the right brain, that's where we create the opportunity for solutions. And when we create the opportunity for solutions, that's when we change. Warren, that was fantastic, bro. <laughs> I super enjoyed this conversation, my man. Thank you so much for everything that you dropped. Um, as we close this, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your programs, about the coaching work that you do? Um, yeah, where would be the best place to connect people with? Um, probably Instagram. Um, you know, we're all on Instagram. Warren W Coaching. Obviously, people can see some of my work, DM me, and then the website, which is warrenwilliamscoaching.com. Beautiful brother. Well, thank you again for all that you do, for being a homie, a friend all these years. And uh, I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path. And I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. <laughs>